Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia, and by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information on their latest activities, please click on the links which you can find on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. In the preface to In Plain Sight, Impunity and Human Rights in Thailand, published in 2018 by the University of Wisconsin Press, Tyrrell Haberkorn asks if and when it might one day be possible to write a book on memories of dictatorship in Thailand. Concluding that today a clear end to dictatorship is not in sight, she invokes Howard Sin to insist that nevertheless we must not accept the memory of states as our own. It is the job of thinking people, as Albert Camus has suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. It is in this spirit that she takes up the task of writing a history of impunity, one that aims to explicitly challenge the repressive organs of the state and their ongoing evasion of accountability. How she pursues that aim and what she uncovers brings us to the contents of the book and to the topic of this interview. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel, together with Patrick Jory. And I'm delighted to be speaking today with Tyrrell Haberkorn, an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tyrrell, thank you for joining us, what I count as approximately four and a half years on from when we first spoke on your first book, Revolution Interrupted. Thank you so much for having me again. Tyrrell, what do you mean by impunity and Why write a history of it? So by impunity, I worked when I was when I was doing the research for the book and then writing it, I worked to come up with as simple and plain a definition as possible. So the way in which I examine it is to look at the persistent and repeated failure over time to secure accountability for state violence, which of course happens in many different ways. And I chose to write a history of impunity precisely, for example, rather than writing a history of state violence, to look at the relationship between violence and the failure to secure accountability and came to understand that the failure to secure accountability was never accidental or incidental or a one-time occurrence, but was precisely a key mode through which the state exists over time, through which it grows and develops over time, and through which the people are variously made unsafe, dispossessed of their rights over time as well. So you establish a special relationship between state formation or state preservation and impunity. Could you say something more about that? Yes. So I didn't know this when I started working on the research for the book. And actually, even when I started writing it, I only learned this as I wrote impunity or evading accountability isn't something that the state simply does because state officials want to avoid individual consequences, but that 
when one steps back and uses impunity as a lens to view change over time, to view historical processes, it becomes clear that it's precisely through the range of ways of evading accountability, through fostering and preserving impunity, that the state itself is formed, that the state becomes a state. Uh, this is not a minor part of, of what the state does. It's precisely how it stays in power and accumulates more power. So why not write a history of human rights abuse or state violence? How does a history of impunity differ from those? They differ in terms of where the emphasis is placed. I chose to do so precisely because of a concern with accountability and justice and wanting to understand why it was so difficult and why, for example, in Thailand at the moment at which I started working on the book, which was 2011, in fact, a much more hopeful time than the present. Things have gotten decidedly worse in the last eight years. But at the time, actually, the book came from, from a moment when I was sitting in the court and observing a case in which a survivor of torture had been prosecuted by the police whom he had accused of carrying out his torture. And I sat in the courtroom when the criminal court judged the survivor of torture to be guilty of providing false information to a state official. What had happened is that the survivor of torture had courageously filed a series of complaints with different state agencies, which in fact did carry out however flawed, investigations into the accusations. But as is very often, but not always the case, the various agencies found that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that the accused police had carried out the torture that the survivor had claimed. The police weren't content with simply being exonerated for, for their actions by these investigations. In one case, a policeman decided to bring a case against a torture survivor. I, I found myself sitting in the court, one, wondering, am I really hearing what I'm hearing? And then wanting to understand how that came to be <laughs> and became very, very compelled by the question of accountability. And in that sense, wanting to understand not only how does state violence happen, how are people's human rights violations, how do they occur, but how do the individual state officials who are responsible for them, as well as the institutions of which individual officials are a part, how do they evade being held to account? That was how the project started. How far back does this particular history of impunity in Thailand go? So it starts with the end of the absolute monarchy in 1932. So the moment on the 24th of June, 1932, when the civilian military coalition, the People's Party, the Kanatasadan, fomented the transformation from absolute to constitutional monarchy. The reason why I began with that moment, although to be fair, I really actually started in 1939. I wanted to start with that moment because of the relationship to the people, the rulers and the law that changes at that moment. And a very beautiful explanation of what happened on the 24th of June, 1932, Bridi Banomyong, the civilian leader of the People's Party, explained that at the time there wasn't a word for revolution in Thai. It came several years later. And so when they described what they were doing on the 24th of June, they explained that they were changing a system in which the king was above the law to one in which the king was under the law. And so that seemed to be the reason to start with that moment. What I discovered 
as I was writing, is that the law and the judiciary are, are key figures in mediating impunity in Thailand as well as in many other places. In that regard, you anchor a lot of the discussion in notions of justice and injustice, and you describe Thailand as having experienced an exemplary injustice cascade. Whose work are you referring to in making that observation, and what does it mean for you to talk of an injustice cascade? It's a, a different take on Catherine Sikink's argument that over the last 30 to 40 years, there's been what she identifies as a justice cascade globally, by which she means that after there being quite secure impunity for crimes of dictatorship and crimes of mass violence in many places, beginning in the 1990s and then really continuing to grow in the early 2000s, there started to be moves to invalidate amnesties, to revoke amnesties. In particular, this happens a lot in the Americas through some of the really exciting work of the Inter-American Court on Human Rights and also various national constitutional courts. And then to actually prosecute dictators and military perpetrators for their roles in violence. What she notes is that the region in the world where there's been the greatest resistance to the justice cascade is Asia. And within this, I would argue Thailand is, is itself quite exemplary. Part of what makes it exemplary is that there have been several successful partial moves to secure accountability. What I mean by that is that there have been state investigations into state violence. In fact, the, the first one that I that I write about happens in 1974 in, and 1975 during the brief opening of open democratic politics between the 14th of October 1973 in Thailand when people rose up to oust the dictators and then the 6th October 1976 massacre. And during that brief period, one of the quite remarkable things that takes place is that citizens call for there to be state investigations into the burning of a village and also the burning of people. In both of those cases, the investigations happen. And then once the investigation concludes, the responsible state ministries refuse to release the results of the investigation, which, of course, certainly for me, it made me think, well, they found that, in fact, the state was state officials were responsible for these actions because otherwise, why wouldn't they release the information? That pattern continues. So what happens in Thailand is that it's not that there aren't investigations into state violence or that there aren't moments where cases um, of disappearance or of mass state violence make it to the courts. It's that then once they get there, the way in which an investigation takes place, the way in which adjudication takes place, does so in a way that that itself, I argue, contributes to the formation of impunity, that those pro in the process of responding to civilian calls for accountability, the state not only doesn't interrupt impunity, but actually provides a further gloss of legitimacy to state violence. So that answer gets to many of the contents in the first couple of chapters of the book. Uh, one of the things you've just pointed to to go to the first chapter is that there's a recursive quality to impunity, to this history of impunity in Thailand. And you underscore that recursivity 
by titling that chapter The Repetition of Arbitrary Detention. Can you say something more about the qualities of that repetition in the category of arbitrary detention? And why start the discussion with arbitrary detention? Why is it a particularly significant category with which to begin your history? So I'll start with the second part of your question of why start with arbitrary detention. I've long been very interested in arbitrary detention. And the honest answer is that's part of the reason is that I had paid attention to it for a long time and tried to understand the different iterations of arbitrary detention in Thailand. And I was puzzled by several pieces of what takes place. One of them is that in Thailand, there have been the repetition, the series of moments of arbitrary detention where I started the first, I should note the first instance of arbitrary detention that I learned about was the detention of those deemed a danger to society after the 6 October 1976 massacre. I learned about it very much by accident when I was doing dissertation research on student and farmer movements in the 1970s and was puzzled and fascinated by what took place, partially because of the category of danger to society. And I wondered, how did one get put into that category and who decided? And also fascinated because it became clear in talking to people who had either experienced arbitrary detention during that period or who had worked uh, on behalf of the rights of those who were detained then or or later, that experiences in detention were quite varied. I expected that during periods of arbitrary detention, the majority of people would be subject to other forms of extrajudicial violence, that torture would be very common, um, and that there would be many instances where arbitrary detention was the beginning of a series of events which led to someone being disappeared. I was wrong. Those things do happen, but they are not the majority of the experiences. So I wanted to understand why that was the case. Why, you know, why are large numbers of people in different periods being held in a way that removes them from any of the usual protections? Part of the repetition of arbitrary detention in Thailand is that this series of moments of periods of arbitrary detention, which are set up through sometimes through laws, sometimes through military dictatorship orders, they are very, very, very similar. And so so they involve people being held in non-standard places of detention without access to lawyers, without the ability to communicate with their families. Also, with some exceptions under anti-communist law and when both martial law and the emergency decree are in force, in most moments, the length of the limit of, of detention is seven days unless another procedure takes place. I've been very surprised that in many cases that seven-day period is adhered to and that at the end of the seven days, either a person is formally accused and transferred into the criminal justice system or released. I found that surprising as well. I thought, why remove people from judicial protection and then send them back into it? I started by explaining the puzzle of what I was so confused by. What I realized as I looked over time, first of all, this tremendous repetition becomes clear and repetition in, in several ways. One, that the very structure of the law or the orders are very, very similar. So those responsible for drafting the laws or the orders are themselves 
certainly looking back on when this strategy has been used. I tried very hard to find archival evidence where someone from the Office of the Juridical Council, which is a body that serves as a legal advisor in a sense to all organs of the Thai state, I tried very hard to find an archival document where someone writing about drafting the arbitrary detention order for dangers to society after the 6th of October wrote and said, we're using the law from from 1958. I never found such a document. Who knows? Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it does exist, but just isn't available to the public. But even without such a document, all one has to do is look at the language of the law and notice that there's just a change in the category of the figure who is subject to arbitrary detention. So when you look at the laws, you can see that they provide a remarkable lens on which to view who has become an enemy of the state in different periods. So at the end of sort of middle to end of World War II, there's enemies of the nation. Then there are hooligans in the late 1950s, early 1960s. There are dangers to society. There are people who are accused of being terrorists after emergency rule and martial law are put into place in southern Thailand in 2004 and 2005. And then after the 2014 coup, there's a range of, of people who are identified as in need of attitude adjustment. I should note that I don't write about this in, in plain sight, but I just last week finished an essay looking at the repetition of amnesty laws, where I again tried to think through this question of why does repetition matter? What, what does it mean over time? And I would underscore that it, it's not a simple question of history repeating itself. It instead shows how within the state itself, there's a process of learning going on of how you most effectively dispossess people of their rights. So your answer has pointed to some of the contradictions or seeming contradictions in this recursive quality of impunity. And in the second chapter, you discuss another seeming contradiction, and that is in the government of Thailand's, on the one hand, its early commitment to human rights standards in the Universal Declaration for Human Rights and so on. And on the other hand, the repressive goals of military government in the 1950s. And you ask, why would military government bother with these human rights standards? So why did they? What's remarkable is that Thailand is one of, Siam is one of the first signatories of the, one of the 46 signatories of the UDHR. And then the series of military dictatorships, particularly that of Sadat Tanalat, that comes in in 1957 and then has an, there's an auto coup in, 50, in 58 claim themselves to be very pro-human rights. In fact, my favorite coup order is that Sarit says that his coup will respect the UDHR. Well, what does that mean? There's three answers. One is that different parts of the Thai state are operating differently. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that's participating in various UN drafting processes is in many ways um, not necessarily operating in, in complete alliance with the dictator of the time. The second reason is that all of those who hold power, including those high up in the army and the military dictators at the time, understand that human rights is a key piece of emerging international governance and so want to use the language, want to talk about it. The third and to me most compelling reason is that when looking at the contrast between their use of human rights language and then what they actually do and who they target for, particularly in the case of Surit, for summary execution, it's clear that they are operating with a conception of the human that does not include 
all people, that they've defined human and see no problem defining human as not including those who are communist, those who are against the monarchy, those who are disruptive to the state in other ways. What are those people if not human? There's no evidence that suggests precisely how they were defined, but they are less than human. They are those who can be killed with, without explanation, those who are beyond the protection of the UDHR. Have the commitments to human rights standards waxed and waned under successive authoritarian and mostly military governments? In many ways, no. <laughs> the stance that begins with Sarit launching a coup and saying his coup would respect the UDHR has survived in various forms up to the present, by which I mean that even under the most repressive dictatorships, those in power have never said that human rights don't matter. It's simply that they, either in their responses to, to advocates domestically or what they say you know, in the present in Geneva at the Human Rights Council is simply a, a version and, rep and representation of the human rights situation in the country, which is at great odds with that documented by human rights activists. What about the practices of impunity themselves in the contents of the third chapter and the one thereafter on what you call the hidden transcripts of two amnesties for state violence that you uncovered in the archives? It seems that there is perhaps some shift in practices. So do you, for instance, see moves from military and civilian government or between military governments that suggest a trend towards juridification or at least the judicialization of violence in relatively recent decades compared to what came before? There's both a shift to juridification and an increasing, again, there's a pedagogical process happening inside you know, in, inside the state where they start to realize that, and this particularly is true after the late 1970s, they start to realize that they need to create a, both within law and then later in the courts, they need to create a record of the state's actions as, if not legal, then at least not illegal. <laughs> and at different times, they, they use the, the two categories, sometimes interchangeably and sometimes differently. And so there starts to be a very clever and careful, careful move, in not only in the chapter on the, the hidden transcript of amnesty, looking at how the two amnesty laws around the 6 October 1976 massacre are written in such a way that a law that looks almost like it's a regular coup amnesty law. I mean, there have been 12 coups since 1932, so coup amnesty laws are a frequent occurrence in Thailand. There's jurists inside the state have a lot of experience in terms of, of how to write amnesty laws. What happens with the 6 October 1976 massacre is that there are two laws passed as well as a standalone constitutional provision. And this is the largest number of amnesty laws for any coup. Usually there's either a standalone amnesty law or a constitutional provision. Why were there so many in this case? There were so many in this case because there was the recognition from within the state that the 6 October 1976 massacre in which students at Tamasat University were brutally killed on the morning of the 6th of October and then that afternoon there was a coup and a return to dictatorship. There was a clear recognition from those inside the state apparatus and not only the jurists but also as the archival file revealed also those in the military that what took place on that day was one, not like other coups. And then two, 
that there was significant concern of legal prosecution for murder and assault from those who had participated that day. And so their solution to it was to find a way to draft the law such that the amnesty covered a very wide temporal swath and a very wide range of actors. Something I find fascinating actually is that the law has never, there's never been an attempt to challenge that amnesty law or other amnesty laws in Thai courts. It could happen in the future, but there hasn't been a moment to date. But the archival record, meaning both the records of those involved in the drafting at the Office of the Juridical Council, and then also the debate in the Legislative Assembly about the law is very clear. There are people who come out and say, yes, this law needs to be passed because I'm afraid I might be prosecuted and face the death penalty. Tyrrell, let's pause for a moment for a message from one of our sponsors. And when we return, we'll discuss sources and reading them, the historiography of human rights and your relation to it and present day conditions in Thailand. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Jewel Haberkorn, author of In Plain Sight, A History of Impunity and a Call for Accountability in Thailand. Tyrrell, at a number of points, you've mentioned documentation. Tell us a bit more about the sources you were reading and how you read them. So this was one of the other surprising moments of working on the book. I think the assumption of many people, certainly my assumption, was that it would be very difficult to find evidence of state violence in the usual places, in the, you know, for example, in the National Archives or in other publicly available sources. I found out that I was completely wrong and discovered that I think precisely due to enduring impunity in Thailand, there are a great number of sources that illustrate not only moments of state violence, but also the very ways through which state officials and institutions evade accountability that are available publicly. So I was able to use a number of sources in both the National Archives, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Archive. They archive their materials separately, as well as all sorts of other kinds of sources where, again, because not only has there not been accountability, but the repetition of the lack of accountability over time has created I would say a kind of daring in which state officials feel quite proud of of their actions and believe that their violent actions have defended the nation. So for example, in another source that I used a number of were the individual memoirs of military officials and other state officials who after retiring, write quite frankly about their actions. The other tremendous source that I would recommend, certainly for people working in the context of Thailand, but I suspect elsewhere, is newspapers. The repeated phrase that journalists write the first draft of history in the case of Thailand is very true and have done a really tremendous job of documenting not only what has taken place, but in the case of impunity, they've done a great job of documenting the kinds of responses of state officials that can't be found anywhere else. So what I found when I was using archival documents, I think this is certainly not only my experience, many, many people have this experience, is to read as much and as widely as possible. And that sometimes it's in very unexpected places 
where one finds the evidence of the evasion of accountability. Did you have any especially startling or surprising moments of discovery that you can share with us? You know, there were two. One I've already talked about, the amnesties for the 6th October 1976 massacre, but actually the second temporally comes comes right after that and comes uh, in the case of I'm thinking about torture after, during the years after the 6th October 1976 massacre. And after a very long struggle, I was able to get permission to use documents at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Archive. And actually, when I requested access, I, I was interested not in looking for evidence of torture, but in looking at how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs engaged human rights organizations in the late 1970s, in that moment when Sam Moyne and others have argued the human rights movement is, is born. And actually the timeline, for the most part, hews to, hews to what happened in Thailand. So I wanted to see, did the Ministry of Foreign Affairs care about human rights organizations? What did they, what did they say? What I found turned out to be far more compelling in terms of impunity. And what I found is that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs received a large number of letters from members of Amnesty International in 1978 and 1979. Um, Amnesty's first big campaign on Thailand began in the middle of 78. And individual members from all around the world wrote letters calling for investigations into reported torture of various political prisoners who were being held. Again, this is one of those moments where you see the interest of the state in responding to human rights. They don't throw the letters away. In fact, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs then writes to various military officers, various prisons, and asks for information on these cases. What they get back is a verbatim response that's the same no matter the case, that there is no torture, there is no delay in prosecution, etc., and for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to then convey this to Amnesty International. So again, this is one of those moments where it's clear that there has to be coordination going on, not only in terms of response, but what I was particularly interested in was in the archiving of this response. It's not just that the army was responding to say there was no torture, it's that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was also archiving and choosing to keep all of this. They were also archiving in a sense, an idea of themselves as defenders of human rights. That's fascinating. And one of the things that I really liked about this chapter, to dwell for a moment longer on reading practices, was that you effectively, to get towards the conclusions that you reach, you worked through two separate archives from this period, in a way, reading one against the other, but also to a certain extent in dialogue with one another, precisely because they comprise of correspondence. So what were those archives? You've already spoken to one. What was the other? And how do you undertake a reading practice in juxtaposition of this sort? The second archive was a collection of newsletters of the Coordinating Group on Religion and Society, which was the first or second, depending on how you count, domestic human rights organization in Thailand. And what happened is as I read the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archive documents and began to think that perhaps they were not being so truthful about what was really taking place, I decided to try to find information about the people written about in those, in their archive, in the records of human rights groups. As a side note, I would note that the Coordinating Group on Religion and Society, which 
dissolved in the 1990s doesn't have an archive in Thailand. So I put together an archive of their newsletters and materials from several libraries in the US, Europe, and Australia, as well as a colleague's personal collection. Um, and for any listeners, I have scanned all of these documents. And if you would like them, I'm happy to provide the Dropbox link to all of them. They're a tremendous resource. What I found is that in all of those cases that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said there's been no torture, there's been no delay in judicial processes, that in fact, the vast majority were tortured. In all cases, there was delay in the judicial processes. And so there's a stark difference in the account, kinds of accounts given in these two different archives. And that the material collected by human rights activists stands in stark contrast and a stark refutation of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs claim to those who wrote letters that, no, these people are not being tortured. No, they are not subject to delays in prosecution. What did you come across in your time in the archives that you didn't include in the book and why not? Three of the, the topics that I wasn't able to discuss because of questions of space and that I hope I will be able to examine later. The first is the unresolved execution of Rama VIII. The second is the vast range of rights violations of those accused of being, of being communists beginning in the late 1950s and continuing through to the early 1980s. There's an entire book waiting to be written about the ways in which the Thai state dispossessed people accused of being communists of their rights. And actually, there's a great project waiting to be done for, I think, for people to go through local newspapers in places that were declared red zones and just looking, for example, for news reports of bodies that were found. Another huge topic that I, again, opted not to discuss for reasons of space is May 1992. Many questions still remain about people who were killed, people who were disappeared, the role of the military, the continuing struggles around accountability. Those are just three. There are, there are more. I have a big pile of things I Xeroxed that hopefully one day I'll return to. <laughs> Volume two. Well, let's return to what is in the book. And the last couple of chapters bring us close to the present day, the one concerning the disappearance of a prominent human rights lawyer, Somchai Nilapajit, and the other, what you describe as the legalization of premeditated murder of protesters in Bangkok during 2010. Are there continuities between the logics of impunity exercised through the courts for the police abduction and killing of a prominent lawyer and those that work to excuse state officers, including the then incumbent prime minister, from responsibility for orders that resulted in the deaths of 88 civilians? There's one broad continuity, but then actually I think the cases are different enough to not be so continuous. The broad continuity is that the courts I think we can now say have become a key site, if not the key site of the production of impunity in Thailand. What's remarkable about the case of the disappearance of Somtai Nila Paichit is that the courts up to the Supreme Court fully embraced their role in not the protection of the people's rights, but in the forceful dispossession of their rights, not only in terms of the significant problems that arise from the fact that disappearance is not yet a category of crime in Thai laws. So that created significant difficulties in trying to hold the perpetrators of sometimes disappearance to account. But what I find most striking and what I have found most striking over time has been that precisely because of this refusal to recognize disappearance as a crime, the court's 
also dispossessed the family of the right to seek justice. That's where there's, I think, an intriguing continuity between that case and the ways in which the courts absolve the perpetrators of Somtai's disappearance from being held to account, and then what has continued to happen until the present. And that's, I think, a sense that if we think back again to 1932 and the attempt of the transformation from absolute to constitutional monarchy of creating of creating a place in the polity for the people, for the people to be protected by the law, to be subjects of the law. What instead has happened in the present moment is that the law is not a tool for the people. The law is a tool for state officials to protect themselves from being held to account. But when the people try to use the law to to protect themselves, to seek justice for themselves, for their family members, for their fellow citizens, the door is closed sharply in their face. I'm a little bit struck by that observation. On the one hand, I get it. On the other hand, coming on top of everything else that you've done, it strikes me as rather instrumentalist reading. It seemed to me that what you're doing throughout much of the book is quite different from offering that kind of reading. Indeed, one of the things that struck me to go to a key term that you've used already in this interview is that there's a pedagogical quality to the recurrence of impunity. And it struck me that the history that you're writing is really, in in many ways, a pedagogical one. And to me, that suggests uh, as a learning exercise that there's something rather different going on from what an instrumentalist account might suggest. I'm happy to expand on that. I don't mean it to be instrumental, although I do think the end result is that that the judiciary is not open to the people. But the broader piece, the pedagogical piece, is that through the series of different kinds of decisions, of different kinds of actions by the judiciary, different figures learn the limits the possibilities and limits of what can be done, not only in terms of what can be done in the courts, but also in the case of state officials, what they can do without having to worry that they're going to lose their jobs or be sanctioned within any kind of procedural violation or be prosecuted and imprisoned. And I think that the pedagogical piece for civilians is that they have learned very clearly. And you, you know, in talking, I didn't, for a variety of reasons, I did not carry out a lot of formal interviews for the book, but the backstory of the book is being involved in and and part of a community of activists working around human rights in Thailand. And what I was struck by and continue to be struck by over time is the profound sense of history and genealogy that many activists and victims and survivors of state violence have. So the articulation of of not being unusual, but coming in a line of prior survivors and victims is something I heard often. The lesson of impunity for the people, and particularly when we think about the present moment and the case of Somtai Nila Paichit, or the ways in which the courts ultimately chose not to take up the case of the killings of those civilian protesters in April, May 2010, is that citizens learn that they or those they care about can be beaten, can be murdered, can be disappeared. They learn that they can try to struggle for accountability. During that process, they're probably going to be harassed. They may be assaulted or killed themselves. They continue to learn that if if their case makes it through the police investigation and makes it to a prosecutor who takes it up, 
even the you know the the facts of what took place which indicate the wrongdoing and violation of the law by state officials can come out into the public and then the court can still find a way to absolve them of their actions so what they learn is a profound sense of a lack of safety you conclude the book by pointing to the sharp constriction of civil liberties in Thailand during the five years leading up to its publication in 2018. Inasmuch as there is no end in sight for dictatorship in Thailand, what would an end to dictatorship there look like for you? That is a very difficult question, especially because of how murky things seem in the present moment. But even you know, even after an election, a very rigged election, in a sense, the junta remains in power as both a junta and a political power, a political party. That said, what I would want to say and what I would offer as a partial closing is that there is, to me, a great deal of hope of the possibility of accountability more so, I think, than, than at any other moment. And part of it comes from the accumulated, as yet unsuccessful, struggles for accountability, including the case of Somtai Nila Paichit, including the very strange dismissal of, of the case um, of the April-May 2010 killings. But also since the coup, the ways in which human rights activists, lawyers, and others have worked very, very hard to document the crimes of the NCPO and also significantly challenged the basis of the coup in that I see the hope of an end to dictatorship and the possibility that maybe there won't be another dictatorship. And in particular, I hold on very tightly to a phrase <laughs> in a Supreme Court decision from March of 2018, a group of civil society activists, resistant citizens brought a case against the NCPO for launching the coup. And in their complaint, they explain how the coup led their 15 plaintiffs in the case, and all 15 are people who have been targeted by the NCPO, who have been arbitrarily detained, in several cases assaulted, in other cases prosecuted for routine expressions of political ideas. And so they, they make an argument for how the coup and the rights violations that they experienced are linked and how these constitute rebellion and treason. The criminal court and the appeal court dismiss the case, just don't take it up at all. The Supreme Court upholds the dismissal of the case and they explain that they do so because in the interim 2014 constitution, there is an amnesty clause for the coup and so the NCPO cannot be held to account. But there is a phrase in the decision where they say that whether or not power was legitimately obtained is a matter that will have to be taken up elsewhere. It's a very strange phrase. They don't say, they don't say when, they don't say what the elsewhere is, but they raise the question of the legitimacy of the coup in that sense of the dictatorship. And I think it will be a moment when that phrase in a court decision expands to a much longer explanation detailing the illegitimacy of the regime that we can think about the beginning of, of an end to dictatorship. I have become convinced thinking you know, over the last 87 years since 1932, and in particular looking at how and how impunity has been created and the increased role of the judiciary it was always present, but in particular thinking about the last five years and the role of the judiciary under this regime, that the end will have to be present there as well. That if the judiciary doesn't shift, the military will not shift. Other institutions of power in the country will not shift either. 
Tyrrell, now that our discussion is coming to a close, I do have to return to the topic of whether or not there's a volume two in the works, or if you're on to some other project. There's a, a volume two and maybe a volume zero, we could say. The volume two is that I'm working on a project about securing accountability and ending impunity in relationship to the current regime of the NCPO. The volume zero is that after finishing In Plain Sight, I wanted to do something somewhat more hopeful. So I'm writing a history of the imagination of justice and democracy through the lens of the life of a dissident thinker who began writing while he was imprisoned in the 1950s and didn't stop until right before he died in 2009, Supot Dantragun, who, despite being imprisoned under two different dictatorships and living through many, many coups, he never loses his faith in the power of the people and the possibility of democracy. So I'm doing both at the same time to feed my soul while my brain is continually encountering ongoing instances of impunity. Tyrrell Habakon, thank you very much for coming again on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, this time to discuss In Plain Sight. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks, as always, to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you may like to listen to Tyrrell talking with a younger and less practiced podcasting me about her previous book, Revolution Interrupted, or Sam Moyne talking about The Last Utopia human rights in history. We'll put the links to these episodes on the website with this recording where you can find thousands more interviews free of charge and where you can sign up to our channel and many others. Hey,